Well, please turn in the Psalms now to Psalm 19 in the Church Bible, or your own copy of God's Word. Uh, it's page 547 if you are using one of our uh, Pew Bibles. And we're coming this evening to uh, Psalm 19, the next in our series of studies in the Psalms. Let's read uh, these verses together. The title is, To the Choir Master, a Psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true. And righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, please keep that psalm open in front of you as we consider it together. At the beginning of each of the years that I uh, took a class in the Mosley Primary School, uh, the P7 class, uh, I would begin uh, each year with an experiment. It was always the same thing. Uh, I would ask the children in the class to try to guess what I was thinking about, and I would give them a million guesses. And there were always lots and lots of creative, uh, ingenious answers, but no one in all the years that I taught those classes, no one ever guessed. I, I, it was always the same thing that I had in my mind, a little pyramid paperweight that sits on my desk, in the study. Uh, but of course, none of the children ever guessed that, and they never 
took all million of the guesses because they got very fed up with the game uh, very quickly. And of course, that was the point that I was making, that you can't know what is in another person's mind without revelation. Unless they tell you what they're thinking, you can't possibly know. You might guess. Your guess might be close. It might be spot on. But it's only a guess. And unless they tell you, yes, you're right, that's what I'm thinking, then you could never be sure that you'd got it right. And I was trying to explain to the children that that's why we need revelation from God. Because if that's true just of two human beings trying to understand what is in each other's heads, then how much more true is it of the infinite mind of God? We can't possibly know what is in God's mind unless he reveals it to us, unless he tells us. And the wonderful thing is that that is exactly what God has done. He has, as it were, opened his mind and opened his soul and revealed himself to us. He doesn't leave us with a million guesses or a trillion guesses. He tells us, he shows us what he's like. And he reveals himself to us in two books. The book of nature and the book of scripture. The theological terms are general revelation and special revelation. Two different ways in which God speaks and reveals himself to human beings. He doesn't reveal himself in the same way in each book, but he does reveal himself. He does truly reveal himself in each of these two books. And David here in Psalm 19 tells us about both of these books. And so we want to look at each of them in turn, and then thirdly at the psalmist's response to these things. So first of all, in verses 1 to 6, we have God's works of nature. God's works of nature. All creation declares God's glory. Every single scrap, every square inch of creation reveals God's glory. But David here is focusing not on the whole creation. He's not looking at the earth at all. He's looking up at the heavens. The heavens is the, the skies and everything above them. Everything in the universe that isn't this earth. That is the heavens. And no doubt David had spent many, many nights gazing up at the heavens. And he would have seen so much more clearly than we can with the naked eye. The, 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 the stars of, of our own galaxy and the stars of distant galaxies and the planets and the moon. Without the pollution of lights and chemicals to obscure his view. And even today, it's quite stunning, isn't it, when you look on the internet uh, at the incredible photographs that people are able to take from places that are very remote and unspoilt. Uh, I, I read the other week about how there are now three dark skies reserves 
In Wales, people come from all over the world because these places are so unspoilt and dark so that you can see uh, into the heavens. Places like Montana, uh, very remote places, uh, you can see incredible things when you look up into the heavens. And David mentions here two aspects of God's works in the heavens. He mentions the skies in verses 1 to 4. The skies, uh, the heavens, and the, the sky above us. And the tense of the verbs here in these verses tell us that the skies are continually, non-stop, preaching the same message on a loop, day in, day out. And that message, that sermon, is the glory of God. The skies are constantly bearing witness to God's glory. In other words, they're telling us, they're proclaiming to us, they're shouting at us just how impressive and how amazing and how wonderful God is. See how powerful He is, how infinite He is. He's eternal. He must have been to create all of these things. How wise he must be to be able to sustain all these things that you see when you look up into the skies. And if David could see God's glory in the heavens, well, how much more should we, knowing so much more than David did about the universe? The more we learn about the heavens, about outer space, the more magnificent God's glory becomes. In 1995, the astronomer Bob Williams, who was the director of the Space Telescope Science Institute, took the courageous decision to point the Hubble Space Telescope at a patch of the sky that was empty. Nothing in it at all. He, he, he looked for a patch of sky where nothing had ever been detected. And he spent 100 hours, and even just one hour with the Hubble Space Telescope is extraordinarily valuable. He spent 100 hours of his allotted time pointing the telescope at nothing. And all his colleagues laughed him to scorn, and some of them were quite angry about it, and they said this is a waste of valuable time that we could be doing serious research with this wonderful instrument. It was a patch of sky, one-thirtieth the width of a full moon looked at from the earth. One hundred hours staring continually at this blank space in the universe. And it turned out after one hundred hours that that nothing was actually crammed with stuff. Not just with the occasional star, but galaxies, whole galaxies, 3,000 galaxies were discovered in that empty patch of space of different shapes and colors and sizes, countless trillions of stars. Just last week, you may have read in the news that the James Webb Telescope may have detected a molecule called dimethyl sulfide in a planet that is 120 light years away from Earth. Isn't that 
just mind-boggling that this telescope in space can tell us that there may be dimethyl sulfide on a planet that it takes 120 years for light to travel from it to us. This molecule is significant because on Earth, at least, it is only produced by life. And so that's got people very excited about the possibility of life on this planet. It's also detected methane and carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which may, it turns out, mean that this planet, 120 light years away, has uh, an ocean of water. Incredible. Verse 2, David says, Even the alternation of day and night proclaims God's glory. How does day and night proclaim God's glory? Have you ever wondered about, has, have you ever noticed the sun going down, unless it's a really spectacular sunset, but just it's nighttime, it's morning time. Have you ever been moved to praise God and to say how glorious you are? Well, that's how David felt about day and night. The constancy, the regularity, the dependability, it testifies to God's creative genius, ensuring that the whole planet gets enough light. It, it speaks of his covenant faithfulness. He's promised that he's going to keep the day and the night and the seasons turning until the end of time. Day and night proclaim God's glory. And that teaches us, doesn't it, to look for God's glory even in the most ordinary of places. I remember years ago being very, very struck by an article written by John Piper about rain. Now, maybe today is not the day that we want to marvel at the rain. Uh, but he was picking up on Job 5, verse 9, where it says, He, God, does great works too marvelous to understand. He performs miracles without number. He gives rain for the earth. He sends water for the fields. And that verse left Piper scratching his head as he thought, I'm not sure that I would have listed rain as one of the wonders that are God's great works too marvelous to understand. But of course, then he started to think, if you live in an arid country uh, and you need water for the fields, you've only got a few wells and maybe they're running low, where, where's the water going to come from? Well, God sends it down from the sky. And where does that water come from in the sky? Well, Piper says it's carried, isn't it, over hundreds of miles from the Mediterranean Sea. And then it's poured out over the fields where it's needed. And then he started to think about, he started to do some calculations, and he worked out that one inch of rain over one square mile of land would require 1.65 billion pounds of water. Water is not light, as I'm sure you know very well if you've had to carry a bucket of water any distance. But all this water, countless trillions of tons of the stuff are picked up off the sea and transported hundreds of miles across to where it's needed. 
but then, of course, the salt in the water needs to be extracted because otherwise it would kill the crops. Uh, and so God does that as well before he drops the water down. And then it, it, the water needs to be sprinkled. You can't just dump all those billions of tons of water or it would kill the crops underneath. The drops have to be just the right size. If they're too big, then they will uh, damage the crops. And if they're too small, well, then they'll just evaporate before they get to the ground. That's the kind of thing that David did. Looking up at the skies, whether it was the, uh, the, the stars and the galaxies at night or the clouds and the rain during the day, and he sees God's glory. And he says, this is a universal language this book is written in the book of God's works of nature. It's seen in every culture. It doesn't require words to communicate it. And that's why, as Paul says in Romans 1, picking up on Psalm 19, people are without excuse because they can all see. They may not be able to understand words in a different language, but they all see God's works of nature. They look up to the skies and they see these things. They see the truth, and then they twist it, and they pervert it. But they see it. The truth is there for all to see. The skies. And then in verses 4 to 6, there is the sun. Uh, David zooms in on the one element in the skies that is the brightest one, the biggest one, the one that is so vital for life on earth, and that is the sun and the language here is poetic. Uh, this is not an astronomy textbook. He talks about the sun rising in the morning, and it's radiant, and it's full of life and strength. It's like a bridegroom on the morning of his wedding, full of joy and hope and expectation. He's like a top-class athlete, the sun, who loves to race around the track. It's a joyful picture, isn't it, of exuberant delight. And this bears witness, David says, to the glory of God, because this majestic, life-giving, joy-bringing son is nothing more than the servant of God who put it there in the first place. And the son stays there exactly where God has placed it, and it runs within the confines of the track that God has set for it. And it's given for the good of man. Everywhere men see its glory. They feel its heat. And yet instead of giving glory to God, what do they do? They worship the sun as if it were a god. How many cultures do that? They, sun, they worship the sun. Uh, uh, confirming without perhaps realizing it the truth of Psalm 19. They do see glory in the heavens. They do see glory in the sun. They're moved to worship when they see that glory. But they don't recognize it as God's glory. And they rob him of that glory. The skies and the sun. God's works of nature. And friends, Christians of all people should be fascinated by the natural world. We may not all be scientists and astronomers, but we have so many resources available to us, don't we, to help us to see more of God's glory in his works of nature. 
wildlife documentaries. You could spend every minute of the rest of your life watching the wildlife documentaries that have been made, and you would still not get to the end of them. With their sophisticated, intricate camera work that can show us things in nature that David could hardly have imagined. Telescopes in space that can detect chemicals on planets that are 120 light years away. Videos on the internet showing us the relative sizes of the stars and the galaxies that will take you on a kind of virtual tour of the universe. Uh, maybe you've come across these kinds of things. I, 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 could, I could get sucked into watching those if I wasn't disciplined and careful. Uh, showing us, you know, here's, here's the earth, and then it zooms out a little bit, and it shows us the sun, this massive star compared to the earth. And then it zooms out a little bit more and shows us the size of, of, of a normal-sized star, which makes our sun seem tiny. And it goes on and on and on, and you realize that our sun is just a little pinprick in the heavens compared to the enormous stars that exist. We should watch those things so that we see God's glory and give Him praise. We should encourage our children to watch that kind of stuff instead of wasting hours and hours on trivial idiocy. We should enjoy the natural world and teach our children to enjoy the natural world by going out to walk in it and to explore it. Buy a telescope. Buy a microscope. Go and look at the sky through the telescope rather than the microscope, and turn your thoughts to praise the Lord. And Jesus shows us how to do this, doesn't he? It's very interesting to analyze our Lord's preaching and teaching and to notice how often he uses illustrations that are drawn from the natural world. Now, perhaps that's partly because he created it, but in his humanity, in his human nature, as he learned about the natural world, as he observed it, he delighted in it, and he saw God's glory in it. And we should do the same. God's works of nature. And then, secondly, in verses 7 to 11, we have the Lord's words in Scripture. We've seen God's works in nature. Now the Lord's words in Scripture. The heavens declare God's glory without words. And that is valuable. That means that they communicate to everyone everywhere without exception. But of course, nature is not enough. The heavens don't tell us enough about God to be able to glorify Him properly and fully. General revelation, the book of nature, only takes us so far. It tells us that God exists. It tells us that God created everything. It tells us that God is very powerful, uh, that he is wise, that he is faithful. All of that is true. All of that is important. But there is so much more, isn't there, about God that we need to know. And thankfully, God has communicated to us in words as well as in his works. He has spelt out all that we could need to know about him. 
And so David turns from nature to Scripture. And there's a, a, an interesting and significant change, I think, from how God is referred to in verses 1 to 6, uh, really just once in verse 1, he's called God. Uh, that's the Hebrew word El. It's the title of the mighty, powerful creator God. But then in verses 7 to 14, he is the Lord, all in capitals. And that's his name, Yahweh, his personal name. The heavens show us El. The heavens show us this powerful creator who exists. But Scripture reveals what that God is like, the kind of God he is. It's a little bit like for many years I uh, was listening to sermons on tape uh, in the days that that's what we listened to things on, tape, uh, cassette tapes. Uh, I was listening to uh, cassette tapes of Pastor Al Martin as preaching, and I would read some of his books, uh, and I felt that I got to know him somewhat through his preaching. But then uh, I was able to go with uh, Pastor Donnelly to Trinity Baptist Church for the pastor's conference in New Jersey each year, and I got to meet Pastor Martin, uh, and I got to go to his home, and I got to sit and have meals with him and to get to know him in a new way as a person. Uh, it's a little bit like that here in these two halves of Psalm 19. Scripture reveals the kind of God God is and what he's like. Scripture is greater than nature because it is much more detailed and comprehensive. And we see that in these different words and descriptions that David uses for Scripture. Six different words for God's word, God's law. Nine qualities of Scripture and four benefits, four results that come from it. And these six words that are used to describe the Scriptures, they're not just six words that mean exactly the same thing. They're teasing out different aspects of God's Word, focusing on a different nuance of it. So David talks in verse 7 about God's law, the law of the Lord. And this word means doctrine, teaching, instruction. And yet it's not dry, abstract, theoretical. It's used in the Bible of a parent's loving instruction of their children. That's what God's law, God's Torah is, loving instruction. Verse 7 talks about the testimony of the Lord. It bears witness to what is right. But the word at its root means warning. It has to do with warning. And that's exactly what the simple need, isn't it? The testimony of the Lord makes wise the simple, naive people, inexperienced people, foolish people. They need warning. And God's Word supplies that. It's the testimony of the Lord. Verse 8 talks about precepts of the Lord. And this word precepts has a strong note of authority. It tells us what we must do. 
And yet for the believer, as David says, uh, this is not a drudgery, but it's a joy. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. A non-Christian doesn't see that. You give non-Christians the precepts of the Lord and they're just going to snore. They're going to scoff. But give a Christian the precepts of the Lord and it rejoices their heart. So God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Well, that is just a misery, isn't it, for someone who's not a Christian, but for a believer. I I get to spend a whole day resting from my work so that I can worship God and fellowship with his people. What could possibly be better than that? The precepts of the Lord rejoice the heart. The commandment of the Lord rejoices. Uh, Commandment is like precept, uh, except here it's singular. It's not the commandments of the Lord. It's the commandment of the Lord. It's looking at the whole body of everything that God commands. And David says it's pure and it gives light to the eyes. That may mean what Psalm 119 verse 105 means, that God's word is a light for our path and a lamp for our feet. It could mean that, or it could mean uh, what we read about in 1 Samuel. Remember when Jonathan uh, had been fasting and, and he found some honey and he put it to his lips and immediately his eyes sparkled. They, they brightened. The honey energized him and empowered him. Uh, and that's what God's Word does. It gives light to the eyes. It energizes us. It wakes us up. It stirs us up and spurs us on into action. The rules of the Lord, in verse 9, these are the the particular applications of God's commandments, and the the, the particular nitty-gritty working out of God's principles in, in everyday life. So in Exodus 20, as we've been studying over the past number of months, we have the Ten Commandments. And then in Exodus 21 to 23, uh, we have what are called rules. This word is used to describe the rules of those chapters. And in those chapters, you have lots of case studies showing you how the commandments, the principles of the Ten Commandments, apply in the specific circumstances of Israel's everyday life. And David says every single tiny detail, right down to the smallest little rule, is true and it's righteous. What about the fear of the Lord in verse 9? This seems to be describing the effect of God's word on a believer's heart. Whenever we take his commandment, his precepts, his rules, his testimony, his law, seriously, it develops fear, reverence for God. Not terror, not cringing horror, but clean fear. It's not polluted, it's not tainted, it's not perverted in any way. So that's what God's words are like. And then David does the application for us in verses 10 and 11. What are we to do? What are we to make of all of that in verses 7 to 9 about God's Word? 
Well, he says three things. We're to desire it, we're to delight in it, and we're to keep it. He speaks in verse 10 about the desirability of God's word. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Gold was the most precious commodity in David's day. Remember Yuski telling us in the adult class last year that the most holy parts of the tabernacle and the temple were covered in gold because it was the most precious metal. And as you moved away from the most holy place, the metals used became less precious. And gold is still so sought after, isn't it? We've probably all heard of the gold rush. In January 1848, a piece of gold was found in California by a man who was helping to build a sawmill. And the news of his find leaked out and became an epidemic by early in 1849. Tens of thousands of people from all over America and throughout the world came to California looking for gold. A plot of land was sold in San Francisco in 1847 for $16. That's before the gold rush started. Eighteen months later, the same plot of land sold for $45,000. That's how desirable gold is to people. And David says, here is something that is more valuable, more desirable than the most precious commodity on the market. And we have it. And it is freely available to us in many, not just one English translation, but many excellent translations. We should ask ourselves, uh, do we seek after it? Is it desirable to us, more desirable than much fine gold? Are you eagerly seeking after God's word to hear preaching so that one service would never be enough for you. You've got to be back again in the evening. I realize I'm preaching to the converted here since you're all here in the evening. But is, is that your appetite? I've got to hear God's word being preached in my quiet time. I, I can't let a day go past when I don't read God's word. In our family worship, is that a time of the day that we look forward to when we can open God's word together and read it, and talk about it. Remember the words of the moderator of the Church of Scotland at the coronation of King Charles as he presented him with a Bible. We present you with this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords, the desirability. If, if all of this is true in verses 7 to 9 about God's words, well, then it should be so desirable to us. And then in verse 10, the delightfulness of God's word. It's sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Something might be valuable. It might be desirable, but it might not be delightful. I suppose good sewers 
uh, are valuable and desirable, but not particularly delightful unless you're of an unusual disposition. But Scripture isn't just desirable. It's not just valuable. It is also delightful. Uh, and verses 7 to 9 bring that out again and again, don't they? It, it should rejoice the heart. It should make us glad, even though it challenges us, even though it smites us like a hammer and burns us like a fire and stabs us like a sword, even as it challenges us and rebukes us and corrects us, it rejoices our heart. We should love to read the Bible. We should love to hear the Bible being preached and explained. We should love discussing the Bible. That's why our, our home fellowship groups are such a blessing. We should love to think about the Bible. And remember, David had much less of the Bible than we do. Just as he had much less knowledge of the heavens than we do, so he had much less Bible than we have. He had the first five books. He had Joshua, Judges. He had a handful of Psalms, perhaps at most. And we have the whole of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, and so how much more should we value it and enjoy it? And if we don't, we should ask ourselves, what's wrong with me? Why does my desire, my appetite, my delight not match up with David's here? Desirability, delightfulness. And then in verse 11, uh, usefulness. Usefulness. The benefits of Scripture are summed up negatively and positively. David says, negatively, uh, they warn us away from danger. By them is your servant warned. And a warning is always a good thing, isn't it? It's a loving thing. It's a kind thing. And the warnings of Scripture are there to protect us, to keep us safe from all kinds of harm in our marriages in our workplace, in our families, in our own hearts. And we ignore the warnings of Scripture at our peril and to our cost. By them, your servant is warned. That's negatively. But then positively, verse 11, in keeping them, there is great reward. The Bible is not just a big book full of warnings. Years ago, our family stayed uh, at a uh, cottage in Fermanagh, and I don't know if the owner had had a bad experience with tenants in the past, but there were just notes everywhere, uh, pinned to the curtains, hanging from the, the blinds, uh, on the bed, everywhere there were notes, warnings, don't do this, don't do this. This is a very stupid thing to do. Don't do this. Uh, it makes you wonder what kind of tenants she had had that drove her to putting up all these notes. But it, it had a very oppressive uh, effect on us staying in the place. It just felt like everything was negative. Uh, and, and the Bible could be viewed like that, couldn't it? Just lots and lots of warnings. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But it's not. It's positive, isn't it? In keeping them, there is great reward. Not just reward, but great reward. There is blessing for those who obey. And that's what Psalm 1 tells us, isn't it? 
The man who delights in God's law and meditates on it day and night, what is he like? A dry, shriveled stick? No, a thriving, fruitful tree beside the river. Living life by God's words is the best possible life that a human being can ever have. As Jesus said, it is life to the full. So God's glory is revealed in God's works in nature and then more fully and more completely in the Lord's words in Scripture. And that brings us lastly, uh, briefly, in verses 12 to 14 to the believer's wishes. The believer's wishes. Because David has clearly taken to heart all that he has said in verses 7 to 11. He is in complete earnest about heeding the warnings of the word and seeking its rewards. And that's why he prays in the way that he does. First of all, he prays, declare me innocent from hidden faults. What are these hidden faults? The commentators agree that it is faults that are hidden from ourselves. Derek Kidner puts it very well. He says, it's not because they're too small to see, but too characteristic to register. So David is praying here about faults that are too characteristic to notice. And I wonder, could that be us? This is a prayer we need to pray. Lord, we have to confess, who can discern his errors? I could have all kinds of hidden faults. Please declare me innocent from hidden faults. Could that be you? Are you a gossip? And everybody else in the church knows it, except you. Are you a liar? Bending the truth, maybe not scandalous, flagrant lies, but just regularly, often bending the truth, twisting it. You're always somehow the hero of every story that you tell. And everybody knows it except you. Are you proud and arrogant? But it's hidden from you. It's too characteristic to register. Are you self-absorbed? Obsessed with yourself. You have a long conversation with someone and at the end of it, you haven't asked the other person a single thing about themselves. You've talked about yourself the whole time and you don't know it because it's too characteristic to see. It's a hidden fault. Do you have a negative, critical spirit? We need to have at least a few people in our lives who can help us to see these things so that we can be declared innocent from hidden faults. And then David prays, keep me back, or keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. These are sins that are deliberately committed in pride and willful disobedience. These are things where you know it's wrong and you just go right on ahead and you do it anyway. And David is very, very well aware of the enslaving power of sin. And so he prays, let them not have dominion over me. 
Because once you start sinning in this way, I'm not talking now about hidden sins that are too characteristic to notice. We're talking about open, flagrant sins where you're sinning against what you know to be right. Once you start doing that, it has dominion and you're ensnared in its grip. So David says, keep me back from it in the first place. And then if we do that, it'll protect us from the final stage that he mentions in verse 13. Great transgression, apostasy, abandoning the faith altogether. We need to be aware of this horrible downward progressive spiral of sin. It starts with error, hidden faults, presumptuous sin, great transgression. And so David prays that he'll be preserved by God, not just in his outward speech, not just in his outward actions, but in his heart. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, my thoughts, my motives, my desires, my feelings, my decisions, my values, please, Lord, let these things be acceptable in your sight. And that's only possible, David says, because of the two things that David calls the Lord at the end of the psalm, my rock and my redeemer. Because he's already committed these sins, hasn't he? He's already done so much that he's praying to be delivered from. He's already guilty. His heart is so divided, just like yours and mine. And the only way that he can be forgiven for his past failure and kept from future failure is because of these two things. That the Lord is his Redeemer, who has paid the price for our sins, and that he is our rock who gives us the strength to persevere. Let's make that our prayer as we see God's glory in the heavens and as we see it in the Scriptures. Let's pray that we will respond like David does, praying for the power of God to work in our hearts, in our lives, in every part of us, so that we might be acceptable in God's sight. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we rejoice that you have not hidden yourself from us in darkness, but we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us so clearly and so completely. We thank you that you have shown yourself to us in all that you have made, that we can see and understand so much of your glory as we look at the world around us. We pray that you will forgive us that we so often have our uh, eyes focused down uh, instead of up and out. Please help us, Lord, to uh, behold and uh, observe and to notice uh, the beautiful, glorifying world that you have made. And we thank you especially for the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, which reveal your will to us and your uh, personality to us, uh, which show us what you are like and what we must believe about you and what uh, you require of us. 
And we pray that you will help us to delight in your word and to desire it far, far more than we do. Give us a greater appetite to study it and to know it uh, and to understand it. We pray, Lord God, especially that your word would have uh, these effects in our lives that we've been thinking about here, that we would be warned by them and that we would be rewarded as we bring our lives into line with your word more and more. Keep us, Lord, we pray, from hidden faults and presumptuous sins and from great transgression. And we rejoice that you are our rock and our redeemer, so that even our sin and our failure is no obstacle to you, because in Jesus Christ we are able to be forgiven for all of our failures. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.